Hello and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Today we've got two very special guests and they've come to talk all about the lifetimes and works of James Smetham. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Ruth Slatter and Dr. Peter Forsyth to the podcast. Hello both. Hello. So I'll give you your introductions. Dr. Ruth Slatter is a lecturer in Historic Environment at the Institute of Historical Research, University of London. Her research focuses on people's everyday lived experiences of religion, faith and spirituality from the 19th century to the present day. She began to research James Smetham and his art in 2016 when she worked on a community history project with the Stoke Newingham, Newington High Street Methodist Church in North London where James Smetham was a member from the 1850s until the 1870s. And Dr. Peter Forsyth is a research fellow of the Oxford Centre of Methodism and Church History, Oxford Brookes University. He's a historian of culture, religion and society in 18th and early 19th century Britain. Most of his research and writing has been around aspects of and relating to the Methodist movement, his career has been varied, much spent in catering. His interests include food, swimming, motorcycling, trains, antique furniture, and silver tableware. That's quite an introduction. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome both. There's different times in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I think to start, could one of you give us a bit of a brief summary of James Smetham's sort of life and works and a bit of a bio okay. yeah sure um yeah so James Smetham was a Victorian artist um but also a Methodist and those two things were equally important I would say within his life mm. so his artistic outputs included very large pictures often portraits he made a lot of portraits um commissions for methodists um some of those are portraits some of those were commissions for the methodist church but he also made lots of much smaller um artistic outputs some of those are kind of watercolors pastels um he made these things called squares which are sort of pen ink drawings we might talk about those a bit later um and his art was kind of reflecting on his personal life his religion um and his spiritual experiences, but also his mental well-being. So he was born in Yorkshire in 1821 um, and spent some of his kind of late teenage years training as um, an architect, became a portrait painter before in 1843 he entered the Royal Academy of Arts as a probationer, but he never successfully made it into the academy as a student. Um, so between 1851 and 1878, he was the drawing master at Westminster College, which was um, an educational institution to train Methodist teachers located in Westminster in London. So while he was working there, he was also still a practicing artist um, and he submitted paintings to the Royal Academy and other regional art academies um, and was a prolific creator of all sorts of things um, and also part of a kind of pre-Raphaelite circle or network, um, particularly good friends with um, Dante, uh, Gabriel Dante Rossetti, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he referred to his, um, these, these squarings, which were kind of a really particularly important part of his creation um, as squares. And even though they were kind of not 
geometrically square. Um, he referred to them as squares and talked about squaring. Um, and he used them to, to capture his everyday life, um, to think about Bible studies and to um, reflect on kind of ideas and concepts as well. So I think that's the kind of the most um, specific in idiosyncratic yeah. element of Smotham's art, potentially the most interesting part of his his art. Um, but yeah, he he was a, a very had a very varied career. Let's put it that way. Oh, what a fantastic introduction! Now I came across Smetham by accident, really, on a on a on a day trip out to Bugley, where I know both of you have been involved in a recent exhibition of Smetham's work at Bugley Museum and Art Gallery. Is it? Yeah. Uh, yes, there's a gallery within Bugley Museum. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Um, could you? Tell us a little bit about how that went. Uh, how did the idea come about and was it well received? Well, no, I enjoyed it. I, I think it was very well received. Um, let, let's start with how, how the idea came about. Um, and it really, got, I have to go back uh, 25 years, really, wow. um, when I, I'd never heard of James Smithson either. But... The collection we've got uh, was deposited with Westminster College, as our institution then was, uh, which was the the, the, the college where, where James Metham um, had taught, though it's moved from, from Westminster out to the outskirts of Oxford um, in the 19, late 1950s. Uh, it came from the, the family who um, didn't have room for it and really didn't want the, the collection, it, and it came to us uh, actually, on something called the capital, this is very um, serious stuff, really, but on, on the capital taxes exemption scheme, uh, which is the sort of um, way people get uh, uh, deal deal with inheritance tax. And one of the conditions of that, of course, a, a key condition is that the works should be publicly accessible. And so from time to time, we've we've exhibited, uh, we don't have a gallery ourselves, but we've got some display facilities, it's been used by students, we've We've, we've had bits and pieces going to uh, various places. And Ruth mentioned the uh, Stoke Newington, um, uh, the opening of their new building, and we lent some, some of the work there. Um, so then uh, it was getting up to 2021, which was the bicentenary of Smetham's birth. And we thought, well, this is the opportunity to do, do something bigger than, than the little exhibitions we've had. Um, and I thought, well, the place to do it really is Peyton Bridge in Yorkshire, beautiful little uh, little town where where Smetham was born. And so I went toddling off to, to Peyton Bridge actually in February 2020 and talked to a, a small, um, very, very interesting little gallery uh, that runs uh, art courses locally. It's not it's more of a workshop than a gallery, but they do have exhibitions, especially during the summer. And we'd we'd started to get um, to set up a, a, an exhibition. And so that was all sort of on the way. And then of course, the following month, uh, everything uh, hit the rocks with the COVID. And uh, as a result of that, well, we did a lot of things online, that's still online. And so, um, I mean, I'm, I hope you, you will give, be able to give um, people various links to our our website because we did various you know, exhibitions online about about Smetham. I think it was then was triggered by two things. That's just on uh, in in October autumn uh, 2022. We had we were contacted by uh, James Smetham's I think 
great-great-grandson who lives not far from Oxford and uh, wanted to come and see what we'd got and brought some of his family. And then uh, in the spring of uh, 22, I was invited to go to Budley because the Methodist Modern Art Collection um, was there. Um, Methodism has a, an interesting relationship with art. It's, it's, there's, there's more going on than one might think. Um, and uh, I saw it, and I saw Budley. You, 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 uh, you've been in the car. It's a very small, very compact gallery. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wouldn't the Smetham collection look great here? Because, as Ruth said, many of the works are quite small. Mm. And so, um, so we started talking to to Budley, and uh, the result was there. It went. How was it received? I think uh, I think it was received very well. The 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 the, the main. Um, comment we had and we kept a visitor's book and this comes up time and again uh the main comment was that i've, I've never heard of smetham before um yep. however a lot of people uh came who had been to as it whitwick manor oh yes yes where there's a there's there are pre-raphaelite associates and i think they do workshops and and, and educational mm. uh, things i've not been there myself um but a lot of people said oh well we know about the pre-raphaelites because we've been to whitwick so they, they got a, a, a bit of a springboard into understanding this. Uh, and whether, I think we may get onto this at some stage, but um, I mean, whether Smetham, we, we described the, we call the expression pre-Raphaelite outsider, but to what extent Smetham can be linked to pre-Raphaelites is, is an open question. So there, there we are. And the ones, I mean, Ruth talked about the squares. I hope maybe we have time to talk about that later on because yeah. they were, they are absolutely key um, to Smetham's work and I think understanding or appreciating Smetham but that's one thing we didn't do in the exhibition mm. because it really it's difficult to exhibit because they are so small mm. um, and so we, we we didn't do much well I didn't I don't think with anything on that that's maybe another exhibition but I um, it, it's very difficult to, to think of but there we are we beautifully I reckon we had something in the region of between two and three thousand visitors uh, have now heard of James Smetham, including yourself. And now <laughs> here we are. There you are. Can you. I just add yeah. that I think when we were planning the exhibition, we were really thinking around the relationships between art, spirituality, and mental health. That those were our kind of three lynch points, weren't they, um, Peter? That we were really trying to pull out. And along with those comments in the visitors' book about. I've never, I've never heard of Smetham. Thank you for introducing me to Smetham. There were also um, various comments about, oh, this actually is a really sad story, and mm. um, this yeah. was really touching or really moving, or or he felt like a really tortured soul. Um, and so, in the end, I don't think the exhibition was kind of explicitly pulling out the kind of relationship between art and faith and mental health because we just didn't have the the capacity in in a small space to do that in a really explicit way. But it was key, key that it was clear that Smetham's art spoke to people in that way, um, yeah. and that some of the pieces that we had chosen had really emphasised that story, uh, and the the sadness of his story really. And I, I had several conversations with people when I was invigilated. I wasn't. I was there for some of the time, but not not that much of it really. In some ways, but several conversations with people who who, who really, yeah. I mean that that struck a chord. Mm -hmm. I'm very sad chords actually yeah, yeah. just to say a little bit of something else it was so 
as I said, the Budley uh, a year and a half ago had the uh, Methodist Modern Art Collection, which is quite an, a, a fascinating, outstanding collection with uh, including works by. Uh, I mean, my my, my favourite was always the work by Edward Barra, who is a neglected artist, another to some extent tortured soul, um, but a, an amazing artist. Um, right through to some present day work, um, so spanning the 20th century into the 21st. Before that, about four or five years ago, or maybe even, uh, anyway, they had um, the exhibition of the MacDonald sisters. Um, oh. these are, are quite a, 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 a um, remarkable one. There's a, there's a beautifully link, uh, because I can't remember his first name, the Reverend MacDonald, who was a, a Wesleyan Methodist minister, same sort of background as, as Smetham, had uh, four daughters and um, the eldest, uh, Alice, married a man called Kipling and was the father of Rudyard, oh, wow. born in, uh, I think, in Budley or certainly lived in Budley. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgiana uh, married uh, Sir Edward Burne-Jones, Edward Burne-Jones, who became Sir Edward Burne-Jones. Uh, Agnes married Edward Pointer, who also acquired a knighthood. And the Louise, I think, the youngest, um, uh, married a, a man called Baldwin and was the father of Stanley Baldwin, who was born in Butley and was MP for Butley. So, as a, against Smetham's rather sad story, there's this, this this very contrasting story of these these four these four sisters who who really um, were very linked to the power and and uh, so on in the early 20th century. It's yeah, there we are. Some, some background. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's sort of, every day is a school day. It's amazing how interlinked <laughs> to these people are. Yes. Peter, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for telling us that. Thank you for a bit of time. Really interesting. Now, um, oh, while we're on the subject, Wittick Manor, one of our one of the members of the podcast team, Hannah, was a um, a curator at Wittick for a number of years, and we've had a number of podcast episodes from Wittick Manor. Uh, we've actually done some live video episodes from there. Um, if you're ever in the Midlands area, the West Midlands, I would I'd really implore you to go. I think both <laughs> of you would love it. It's a fantastic okay. sort and of I arts and crafts aesthetic it. property. Yes, I ve very much recommended. Thank you. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about this idea of Smetham as a a pre-Raphaelite. I think some of his more popular works, works that uh, perhaps our audience might recognise. Uh, I think I'm thinking particularly of the. Uh, is it called Girl with the Mandolin? Uh, yeah, I think it's just called Mandolin. Is actually, it called Mandolin. Uh, yeah, fantastic. I, I think to some extent that would certainly fall under the the broad banner of pre-Raphaelite. And I, I I was particularly struck by his sort of Holman Hunt-esque mm -hmm. use of lighting in a number of works. Yeah. Um, what what are your opinions on Smetham as a as a pre-Raphaelite? Do you think we can definitely give him that label? Or is he somebody on the on the peripheries of the Rossetti circle? Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. Um so Susan Castrus uh, wrote a book called James Smetham, Artist, Author, Pre-Raphaelite Associate. Mm. And um she really argued that Smetham's kind of pre-Raphaelite moment was a sort of trial, if you like, and a, a, a go at something, an attempt to kind of engage with something very briefly in the 1850s. And 
she then includes a, a reference um, to a, a letter that Smethen wrote um, to one of his friends, William Davies, in 1857, where he says, oh, you know, pre-Raphaelitism isn't really for me. Um, and I think in that instance, Castrus is referring to some very specific examples. Um, so there's Naboth in the vineyard, um, yeah. the dream, the water lily, um, and figures at the seacoast, which she says is kind of reminiscent of Holman Hunt's Our English Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these these pieces that use kind of paraphrolite colour and um, arrangement uh, and potentially subject matter as well from that late 1850s, which have this really obvious link to paraphrolitism. But actually... I think if you look into Smetham's life, his relationship with the pre-Raphaelites as people actually comes much later. So it's in the 1860s that he spends most of his time um, with Rossetti. He goes and um, works in his studio on a Wednesday and stays overnight. So in the late or the middle to the late 1850s, Smetham had moved from... Um, Uh, Pimlico where he lived to Stoke Newington which was at the very very outskirts of North London at the time like really a rural suburb Um, he'd done that for his mental health he found living in central London very difficult um, the kind of the noise and the pace of life but living in Stoke Newington much easier Um, but it did mean that he was kind of um, beyond that kind of artistic network And so um, he went and stayed with Rossetti on Wednesday evenings and worked in his studio as a kind of way of keying in him into not just a kind of pre-Raphaelite network, but a much broader 19th century art network. Um, And it's in that period that um, the mandolin player um, that you just referred to um, and paintings like Pandora and Irene or Irene with the tambourine, a lot of these paintings have various different names in different places were made some people argue that the mandolin player was like a kind of joint project between Rossetti and Smetham and that Rossetti started it off and it's kind of in that sort of Rossetti stunner mode and that Smetham just kind of painted painted in the the the, the kind of colors as it were um others are a a bit more unsure about that but we do know that those that those sort of mid 1860s paintings, which include female figures, were almost certainly using the models from Rossetti's studio because Smetham mm-hmm. couldn't afford to have his own models, and in general wasn't a particular fan of using models and engaging with models. But I, I mean, Peter might have a slightly different take on this. But from my perspective, it's not it's not necessarily even the kind of the style or the the coloring or even the subject matter in um smetham's art which kind of links it to the pre-raphaelites for me it's the kind of the intensity of emotion and um this yeah. kind of um a darkness of spirit um yeah. this kind of draw being drawn to subject matters that are kind of sad or or mystical or just, just slightly sort of beyond the normal as it were mm-hmm. um that one of uh what one painting that i find very interesting is uh oh peter what's the name of the the man who died who sits and looks out to see oh, hugh, hugh miller hugh, hugh miller. miller yeah mm-hmm. so there's this painting of hugh miller looking out to see hugh miller um uh well he was a geologist wasn't he um a scottish geologist yes. but also known as a kind of evangelist and you know imagine a 19th century man of many skills and talents and 
but his father had died when he was young. Um, his father was a sailor, was lost at sea. And it was almost like Smethen gets drawn to these figures who have these very tragic lives in a kind of a similar way to which, you know, pre-Raphaelites, the kind of the central body of pre-Raphaelites, they, they get drawn to kind of tragic figures. And I think it's that sort of, it, there's something about the emotion, there's something about the intensity of emotion, there's something about sadness and darkness that even if Smetham was all, not necessarily always choosing exactly the same colours or styles or or ways of depicting that, that there was something, there was there were ways in which they were similar or they had a similar perspective on art making. But saying all of that, you know, we do, we have various, various letters, not just that, the letter that, um, Smetham wrote to William Davis in 1857 but there's also a letter he wrote to his brother in 1876 so you know we're talking 20 years later where he says um, I'm incompatible with the pre-Raphaelites because they're pagan he actually uses the word pagan okay. um, and he complains a lot about that the hours they kept he says oh they're always up really late they don't <laughs> eat dinner until 2am in the morning this, this isn't compatible with my Methodist lifestyle mm-hmm. so I think I probably agree with Castrus's uh, kind of conclusion that Smetham was a Paraphylite associate because he chose to not be part of the centre, like he chose to keep himself on the outside. I think that's probably true, but I think that they were more connected than she maybe gives them credit for in terms of their approach to art and their thinking mm-hmm. about art. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Peter, I don't know how you what you think around no, that. that. That fair, fair comment because I I'm, I'm not I you know I don't know that much about the pre-Raphaelites but I I think this sort of this darkness this exploration of of, of the mystical is and, and, and something about the use of, of light and almost the use of darkness mm-hmm. um, I mean that one of my the the pictures I'm always drawn to in a rather it's a sort of anti-favorite really is is the um, uh, the beadsman, which is, mm. I mean, it, here, the person we haven't mentioned so far is Blake. Mm. Yes. Uh, because I think in many ways, um, Smetham should be more associated with Blake. And his his painting, That Beadsman Old, is, is I think, a quote from Blake. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's this this um, uh, picture of a, a sort of ecclesiastical, well, the beadsman is somebody who, who offers prayers for the dead, I think, and sort of slinking off into the shadows. And it's a, a very dark picture. Or is it? Uh, because if the, the, the window in the background is very brightly coloured and, and, and that in, in, a, in church, that would be the east window uh, through which the sun is rising. So is it a, is it a picture of hope, uh, though it looks so dark? I, I, I mean, that's the sort of ambiguity, I think, of, of some of the free Raphaelites. Yeah, I think I think ambiguity is probably a good, <laughs> certainly a good a good term to use, a good concept. The um, the beadsman, I see. I found that probably one of the most pre-Raphaelites, probably mm-hmm. most pre-Raphaelite like of Smetham's work. It reminded me of Holman Hunt because of the use of light in the lantern. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it, it, mm-hmm. it's that stylistically quite pre pre-Raphaelite. Yes, but also its influence as well. So you mentioned. Beadsman from Blake, but it's also, is it a line? Is it Keats, uh, St. Agnes Eve? I, I think. Oh, yeah. There's a term in Keats, he refers to the beadsman. So that Keats influence and the Blake mm. influence. So mm. he, Smetham's 
clearly picking up influence from the same figures that Rossetti and the Pre-Raphaelite Circle mm-hmm. were influenced by. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I suppose we should also talk about Smethen's relationship with Ruskin as well, shouldn't we? Yes. Um, because Smethen was a, a huge, I suppose you call him a fanboy of Ruskin <laughs> from afar and um, attended Ruskin um, lectures um, and then ended up having a sort of um, correspondence with Ruskin, where Ruskin was very generous with him, wasn't he, actually, Peter? And, oh, I think so, yes. Yeah, yes. very complimentary of, yeah. of his of his art, um, spent a lot of time listening to um, Smetham and, and complimenting him on his work, but also giving him advice about what, what he should be doing. But yes. I think Smetham was... was influenced by that idea of kind of a a naturalistic representation of the world and nature and capturing the world around him um but for Smetham that was also part of his sort of spiritual practice so he would take a sketchbook into um the outside world and he would spend time sort of engaging with it but that was also his way of you know it was a sort of a spiritual act as well as an artistic act so those are some of the ways in which these kind of lines between art and faith um, begin yeah. to kind of blur a bit. Yeah. I did wonder about the, the Ruskinian influence because uh, some of the landscapes mm. in uh, the exhibition in Budley certainly felt Ruskinian, you know, mm. uh, and pre-Raphaelite to that, you know, painted from nature mm-hmm. and sort of, yeah. I think Ruskin really appreciated in turn that every inch of the canvas was filled with detail yeah. and that yes. that really stood out for me in Smetham's landscapes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the and, landscapes are quite different stylistically, I think, from some of his other work. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one, um, Lovers in Richmond Park, is a kind of personal favourite of mine, of that sort of capturing a moment between two people, but also capturing that kind of you know those paint those photographs that we now see of Richmond Park with the sort of the deer and the mist and the trees and and Ruskin sort of captured um some of them captured all of that in a way that Ruskin would have been kind of interested in and um excited by I think yes. um yeah well brilliant well I'm, I'm glad it wasn't just me that was, <laughs> I'm glad it was correct on the Ruskinian influence and <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about the links, uh, as you spoke about, between the art and the spirituality. Mm. Um, So we've mentioned many times so far Smetham's links to Methodism. Um, Could you perhaps explore that a a little bit? Because I think particularly pre-Raphaelites, we don't always, well, we don't necessarily think of Methodism. We often think of quite high church, Oxford movement, Certainly, yeah. aesthetically, anyway. Yes. Yes, I mean, how do I put this briefly? Because I've done so much work on this in this area over many years. So Smetham was the son, nephew, cousin, brother of Wesleyan Methodist ministers. Um, it was, you know, it was absolutely integral to who he was. There's a, there are pluses and minuses here because it gave him a, a, a firm um, a firm sort of centre to his life in that his life revolved in many ways around his his, his faith and his his work and he ended up of course oh I say ended up I mean he was only thirty when when he was recruited for the staff of of, of the new Westminster College in London 
uh, quaintly then not turned Westminster College, but the Wesleyan Normal Institution, because it taught the norms of um, teach training, and um, uh, and it was quite a, a you know it was it was a it was a novel institution. There were a lot of people who doubted this. I mean, teachers are made in the classroom. If you're if you're you, people became pupil teachers and they, they set up this college, um, and um, Sebastian became the drawing master. And uh, and that in many ways became the, the centre, the centre of his life. But um, so to go back, his father was a uh, a Wesleyan Methodist minister, and, and that meant that they they were moved repeatedly. So Smetham was born in Pateley Bridge, uh, but his father moved um, when he was um, when Smetham was about uh, was was just under two, actually just coming up to two. Um, moved uh, to um, uh, to near between Ilkley and Skipton to Addingham it, again still in Yorkshire I think that's where Smetham had a vision he recalls as a child seeing the blue of the hills and the the, the beauty of the uh, of the Yorkshire countryside and I th I suspect that's Addingham rather than Pateley Bridge uh, and then um, uh, moved uh, across to, to Cheshire where he spent two years in, in Nantwich, three years in Conkledon, then to Derbyshire, three years in Leek, a year in Aspie-Lazouch, and so on. He's, he's being moved every every couple of years, typically. Now that, you know, I mean, if we know anything now about childhood, child-rearing, that does not lead to stability. Mm -hmm. and, and so what his, his parents did, as many uh, Wesleyan ministers did who, who could afford it, they sent the... the um, their, their their boys uh, when their boys and girls went to different different Methodist schools that were largely aimed at um, at the children of of, uh, of of Methodist ministers to to give them a more stable education. He was sent to Woodhouse Grove School, um, and it's quite it's quite it's set in a valley. It's a rather lovely setting, uh, but Smetham was absolutely miserable there. He hated it. It was a very austere school at the time uh, very disciplined and he he ran away uh, and and it, it, it actually that did not help his mental health so methodism uh, also at that time was going through a really a, a great deal of change um so uh, from the, the the after the napoleonic wars uh, particularly that there are tensions within methodism that it should become more um, more democratic, uh, less authoritarian, um, and and that resulted in various splits in the movement. The the, the key figure in that was uh, was someone who was uh, leader of the Methodists in effect for twenty years, um, undisputed um, head of somebody with the name of Jabez Bunting, Reverend Jabez Bunting. Who, who in 1927 said that Methodism is as much opposed to democracy as it is to sin. Um, so you get the flavour of it, that it is, is, is very autocratic. Yeah. Now, uh, and that again sets up tensions uh, with, between um, individual needs. And, and so when Smetham became the drawing master at West, Westminster College in 1851, that is the time of the, what I'm, I call the Great Schism, when uh, in the 1840s there have been real challenges to, to, to the Methodist autocracy, which resulted in, in four leading ministers being expelled in, in 1849. 
Uh, and over the following three or four years, the Wesleyans lost a third of their membership. And it was a huge sort of challenge. Uh, and, and so Smetham is, is really, you know, his, 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 the constancy of his Methodist, um, his Methodist faith, his Methodist upbringing, his Methodist loyalty, uh, his Methodist spirituality, everything which, which sort of made him who he was, is actually, you know, out there in the bigger, wider world, is actually coming under serious threat. The contrast I sometimes draw is with another artist, um, James Clark Hook, who's mm. almost contemporary with Smith. I think born 18, a couple of years before, um, but became a very successful land, well, more seascape painter of, of um, coastal scenes, did very well for himself, uh, remained a, a, a Methodist, a, a lay preacher, a local preacher, as they, they call them. So, so there's this contrast. It's um, it, within Methodism. So it, Methodism is, is um, what I'm saying, I think Methodism is at one and the same time the source of his stability and the source of his instability. I don't know if Ruth wants anything to add anything to that. Sorry, I'm, I've, I've uh, gone on far too long. And, 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 and another three hours, I think. But I won't. I suppose the only thing that might just be worth kind of adding in terms of Carl's original question around Paraphyllitism and its links to kind of the high church is that we should just clarify that we're talking about Wesleyan Methodists that, you know, they're still nonconformist. They're definitely nonconformist. They're definitely kind of, um, I suppose you'd say evangelical Protestants, but they were uh, particularly by this stage, they are prioritizing being a kind of stable, established church, even though, you know, Methodism was initially established within the Church of England and then was a movement within the Church of England and then became a separate church in the very early 19th century. But uh, the Wesleyan Methodists were sort of dispensed quite quickly with some of the more radical elements of the Methodist movement in some ways, while the the prims, primitive Methodists and other branches of Methodism that began to develop in the 19th century, they were the people that you were, might imagine that sort of quite radical Methodist practices. Yes. Um, uh, but it also there's a lot of geographical variety, isn't there, Peter, in Methodism oh, in this period? Yes, yeah, huge because yes, and the North tends to become to be more uh, more radical. Yeah, and yeah. The, the, especially around the big industrial areas. Yeah. So, so and John Wesley died in 1791, just after. Uh, I mean, the French Revolution. When at that point, there are still many people in England who say, "What we need is a is a French Revolution." I mean, you've got a king who's Who's, who's sort of mad and losing the plot, um, a profligate um, prince regent. And so there was a lot of sympathy and support for the French Revolution until the French Revolution went the way it did. And then they decided perhaps that wasn't the greatest idea. Uh, but even then, then you get the, the movement of, of the radicals. You get Peter Lou in 1819, just before Smetham is born. And, and gradually then in, in 1832, the Great Reform Bill and, and all the legislation that comes in after that. Uh, and that, I mean, that affects the art in a way, because mm. as a result of that, a lot of the new big municipal authorities, particularly in the north, um, the new big cities are able to spend um, public money building art galleries uh, and, and, and all these huge spaces on the walls for, for artists to fill with with. Um, moralizing pictures uh, yeah. and that's again that's all part of the art the art scene of the middle of the 19th century but maybe i think in this we sort of hinted at this didn't we with um the discussion about why smetham maybe choose chose to distance himself 
from the pre-Raphaelites that you know Methodists were named Methodists because of their methodical approach to yeah. to religion so yeah. this idea of regular prayer regular fasting regular bible reading lots of hymns um you know all of all of these things that people think about when they think about Methodists and Smetham was a man of rhythm and regularity and of doing the methodical approach to yeah. life. Yeah. Um, you know, he went on his daily walks. He did his daily squarings. He, you know, he attended the weekly class meetings, which were these kind of lay-led gatherings to kind of keep people on the right track, effectively, yeah. within the Methodist church. And for yeah. him the kind of the lifestyle of artists maybe more than just the lifestyle of the pre-raphaelites but the lifestyle of artists in central london wasn't compatible with his methodical approach to life i think that's that's possibly it from uh what i know about rosetti at that period. <laughs> i don't think uh routine and <laughs> being methodical about things were on his agenda no <laughs> course, I, I think one, one of the one of the um uh, one, one, one of the uh, things, the items we had in the exhibition, which you're you're, you're seeing, yes. Carl, was this this letter from Rossetti, uh, where where Smetham had had sent him a whole lot of his what he called his ventilations, which is his thoughts, and uh, uh, really a lot of religious stuff. And and Rossetti, Rossetti um, uh, more or less wrote back and said, "Well, I, I like your art, but don't send me more of that stuff because." <laughs> I, but, um, I, I have no such face as yours, I think was the mm. quote. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Now, we, we've spoken a lot about the tragedy in, in Smetham's art, and we've spoken a lot about, about his sort of disrupted childhood that was spent moving around uh, the country, particularly in the north. Now, one of the aspects you wanted to draw out in the exhibition was certainly uh, mental health, and I think the, that came across really well. And Good. thank you. The conversation we had at the gallery, Peter, I yes. think you, you explored that really well with myself. Um, could you talk a little bit about mental health throughout his career and um, perhaps some of his creative ways of uh, dealing with this? Because they're quite fascinating yeah so we don't actually know exactly what mental health condition Smetham had or conditions mm -hmm. that he had his close family and friends including Rossetti described them as depression state of darkness and a lowered tone and we also do know some of the kind of symptoms that he had mm -hmm. so he had um, agoraphobia where he couldn't leave the house for kind of months at a time um periods where he was just sort of his mood was so low that he couldn't do any kind of creative practice um and then he also had two mental breakdowns maybe we might describe them at various different points in his life where he had kind of delusions and hallucinations um he had some seizures and towards the, the end of his life he became mute um after a period where he could only speak in falsetto so he went mute it was a selective mute then he started speaking in falsetto and then by the end of his life he was mute again so uh, some people who i've spoken to who kind of understand these sorts of things better than i do have suggested that potentially by the end of his life he was suffering from alzheimer's mm -hmm. which obviously at the time wouldn't have been understood but he, you know, by the, the end of the 1870s, his mental health was really very poor. Um, he was on decline and he spent the rest of his life in various asylums and homes where people were, were looking after him. 
And these mental health conditions had kind of various negative impacts on his life, on his creative practice and his career, I suppose. Um, So they meant that he was unable to to create and and engage in artistic practice in various moments in time. But also the fact that he moved to Stoke Newington and that that removed him from that artistic network. He was kind of constantly talking about, I wish I could be with you more. I wish I could be part of the network more, but I just can't. I can't do that. Um, And living in Stoke Newington is really good. And I like the area and I like my Methodist community, but they don't understand my art um and that was always there was always a, a tension around that so in some ways smetham's kind of creativity helped him to manage some of these mental health problems but i think in other ways they also kind of contributed to some of maybe his kind of final moments of decline and i think that this is best demonstrated in his squares so these were kind of maybe two inches by one inch squares that he would draw, although they kind of, they vary quite a lot in different volumes where he would sort of capture different things. So sometimes he'd square his everyday life and he'd just draw little figures and he'd put kind of um, initials next to them and he'd have some words and he also had some symbols. So he had a little harp for praise and he had a little figure of eight for Mm. prayer and a sort of affinity figure of eight, sort of sideways figure of eight. Uh, He also squared every single verse in the Bible. And he also had this thing called his index rerum, where he sort of squared and drew and sketched um, ideas, concepts, but also sort of captured famous figures. So like Napoleon, but also I think William Morris is in there. And there are various different different people that are are captured in this um, uh, book. And so... um, they helped him to sort of calm his mind and process his day sometimes they also meant he sort of talked about them as garden plots so they meant he could sort of plant an idea and that it was safely planted in his garden plot and that he you could water it come back to it later and grow so it meant that he wasn't kind of keeping his ideas in his head he'd recorded them somewhere um but with his bible squarings um this was really his way of of fulfilling the call to Methodists to do as much good as you possibly can for every person you possibly can in every possible way that you possibly can. This this real kind of demand that was put on Methodists in this period to to do good in the world. And for most of Smetham's contemporaries, that would have looked like teaching in a Sunday school or evangelising or doing some kind of social action project. But Smetham really strongly felt that... um, he had been given an artistic skill or creative skill by God and that therefore he should use his creativity to do good in the world. And um, by squaring the Bibles, he kind of said, this is my way of understanding Bible passages in greater depth and getting to something that other people haven't found. And then um, we also know through um, some of the the work that his wife did after he died to kind of preserve things that he'd done, that he... um, uh, created sort of sheets of Bible squarings that he then shared with his um, uh, classes that he ran to kind of share his ideas with other people. Um, but the problem that he faced was that his kind of Methodist community were at best kind of ambiguous about their relationship with art and creativity. And I'm sure that Peter could talk a lot more about this. Um, he's written a lot about these this kind of relationship between Methodism and art. Uh, but it meant that a lot of the, a lot of the time people were like, oh, I'm not I'm not actually sure that by being creative, you're doing good 
for God, I actually think you're kind of tempting people and and drawing them. You know, the beauty is drawing them away from God and being close to God because they're they're tempted by the the eye and and the, the you know what what that could draw you to. Um, and ultimately, I think that this kind of this was part of the reason why Smetham descend his mental health descended and there is somewhere where he talks about this tension between his creative gifting and its lack of appreciation and his um church community kind of contributing to his mental breakdown but he begins to kind of compulsively square i think towards the Mm -hmm. end of his life as a means of um a means of trying to prove his spiritual worth uh and and by the mid-70s his wife is kind of putting a drawing ban on him uh, and he writes to a friend to say, you know, I, I wish that I could just stop creating. I could stop making everything, even my squares. But I, I kind of feel compelled to do so. But I'm I'm so tired that I, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's this kind of, again, quite a kind of tragic story of something which brought him so much hope when he initially started squaring, eventually be, being part of that kind of mental breakdown at the end of his life. It's um, quite isn't it really? yeah i mean the other thing is that he i mean we, we this is all about his art but he was also a writer he wrote or a poetry uh, we did have some of those and they've gone astray some of his ventilations which are sort of verbal verbal squarings if you like uh, where he's <laughs> just, it seems almost as if he couldn't have a random thought uh going through his head without sort of pinning it and and and, and capturing it and I think it's probably worth saying what a ventilator looks like. Um, yeah. So yeah. there are some of them in the Queen Mary um, University special collection as well that I've seen. And they are very small. Again, um, they're sort of what, maybe three inches by an inch long. And they were pieces of paper that he stitched together. And and from what I can tell, I think there's somewhere I've read where he described what he did, but he'd sort of make them and, and he'd write things down and then he'd carry on writing them for about a week and then he'd send them off to somebody. Um, and yeah, they're, they're very kind of like uh, off the top of his head sort of writing. Um, but they also include some really amazing sort of illustrations, but visual reflections on what he was writing as well. So one of them has a really nice illustration of, the house in Stoke Newington and where that was located and yeah there are various moments where he he includes images um and and paints some of them in some of them are in color in the ventilators as well um but yes they are like uh written squares um Peter that's a really nice way of describing them yes I'm I'm just thinking possibly as a as as a pre-Raphaelite way and I know Peter and I have spoken about this there's so much written at the moment now about the interplay between text and image mm. and certainly how that feeds into a into creative processes and it's something um, my, my work looks at quite a bit and I, 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 there's something in there I can't quite put my finger on it just yet but they are very unique aren't they Smetham Square so I don't think I've come across anything mm. like them before. No, I, I think you're right. It took some uh, some of our items um, to uh, for, for some of our art history colleagues at Oxford Brookes University to look at um, a year or so ago, I think. Um, and it was mostly another artist, but we did take some of 
Uh, and one, Matthew Krask, who's recently written a, a huge, well, it's recent, yes, two or three years ago now, a big biography of, of, of a new biography of Wright of Derby. Um, uh, he got really excited about this, that it's, um, that, that here is someone who actually sort of visualizes his, his mind. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, artists make sketches, mm. and sometimes quite small sketches, but this is in a different league. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know of any, I haven't read of anybody saying, oh, well, he, of course, he's just like so and so. Yeah. Really, it's really different. But I, th I think we should we should say that these squarings come with a health warning, don't they, Peter? Oh. Um, as as researchers who have spent many an hour with them, they are almost impossible to um, read uh, as representations. I would say that you know we we now that we know them relatively well, we can pick out some of the initials that are in them, and we can be like, oh, that's William Davis, or that was when he was at Rossetti's, or um, these are some of the people that he had in his. Um, uh class meetings or you know we've got various letters so we can see who some of these people are but um i've recently written an article about you know i actually i think the value of them is not in what they represent as you know what they show us about Smethen's life but as a kind of reading them as a practice so understanding them you know as a as a process mm. and, and why Smethen was doing that and actually he left us so much in his letters about how he squared, why he squared, where he squared, it's actually really fascinating. Yes, yes. And I, I think to, to bring it into a slightly different context, I mean, that sort of thing um, it, it is, is not uh, a million miles from the sort of therapy mm. which is, is sometimes used for people with um, mental health issues now. And, yeah. and, and, and actually visual journaling. Mm. Uh, right. Is, is is something pe people people do text emojis you know yeah. it's not a million miles right yeah. <laughs> yeah and i suppose what we the other thing that we should really mention in that some of his one of his squaring's journal is his orrery of personal responsibility which is the set of concentric circles that move from him in the center through his very close family friends acquaintances etc and um that really is a kind of uh, a tool that people who have limited either mental capacity or kind of physical capacity, like a tool that is used to help people to organize where they spend their energy with other people. Mm. Um, this kind of idea of draw yourself in the middle. You know, if you've if you've got limited capacity today because you're not feeling well for whatever reason, who are the people that it's most important that you give your time and your energy to? And that's effectively what Smethen was doing. He was sort of being like, if I can only talk to this many people, I will talk to this group of people. Yeah. If I have a bit more energy, I will talk to this group of people. I mean, that diagram is very complicated and there were probably lots of other things going on too but I do think that that was part of what he was doing and the connection between that and what is now used in contemporary practices to support people who have limited energy for whatever reason um, is astonishing really. We, we made something of this in the exhibition didn't we and, and mm. um, uh, almost as a children's activity um, there were several times when when children were working, we had a little model of the the, the, the solar system. I learned the order of the planets. Don't ask me. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the, the, the children were sort of a bit puzzled by this. And I said, well, look, just think of it. You, you draw 
a diagram of of who's closest to you, your your family, your your mum and dad, and your brothers and sisters, and then at school, who are your close friends that mm -hmm. you, and then move outwards, and then you think, you know, everybody in the school, that's you know, so many hundred people, um, but um, and, and you can draw a diagram of of your own orrery of of of, of relationships, and they, you know, it it was a way of expressing not quite what Slatham was doing, but but I think very similarly. Mm. yeah an orrery is a model of the solar system yeah so yeah. <laughs> just if anybody's listening i mean like what are they talking about um yeah. but it was the lord of orrery who was mm. the first person to commission one of these working models of the solar system hence why it's called an orrery Orrery, yes yeah. I, I, that was the other th the outcome of the exhibition a lot of people the other comment was a lot of people said you know i've, I've never heard of specimen before the second the second comment was <laughs> I've learned what the word orrery means. <laughs> <laughs> but the, or the orrery is fantastic. Of course, Rossetti's on there as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Frederick Shields. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, could could one of you um, sort of briefly tell me a little bit about what happened to Smetham's work after he died? And where, where are they at now? And can we visit them? Can we see them? Or they're all over the place, um, and partly because he has been neglected, mm. there's no significant question. I mean, what, what happened to us, as I say, is that um, Bruce Smetham uh, inherited these in the mid-1990s um, and wasn't clear what to do. And, and it's, at one point, you know, they, they actually went to, um, he was he worked with Christie's on, on this. They went to America, and the, the, work, the book by Susan Castorus, uh, which is, is a very useful book, um, uh, although I think it's, in my opinion, it's limited, it, it uh, was the book that went with the exhibition, was exhibited at the Yale Centre for British Art. And actually, one of the reviews, I think, in the New York Times was 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 not complimentary. It was a sort of review that Smetham um, sometimes got. Um, so there were those of his paintings that were sold very often to Methodist families, but they, you know, like a lot of 19th century art, Come the 20th century, it goes out of fashion. And yeah. they, well, I suppose many of them may have been destroyed. Um, some is in public collections. Um, uh, so I think that the, the uh, Ferrens Gallery in Hull has has a couple. Uh, there's one in the Museum of Methodism in, in City Road in London. Um, and we, we, but I think what um, uh, Sarah Smetham, uh, James Smetham's, wife widow did was to distribute them as evenly as she could among the family mm. um and one of her i think the, the most moving picture that um we we mounted so it faced you as you came in um was sarah smetham and baby john baby john grew up and he, he actually painted himself a bit um and um but he um for his health apparently he moved to south africa in the uh, in the 1880s, uh, and he had a, a, a collection of his dad's work, which I think he left to the National Gallery of South Africa in Cape Town. It's not there anymore. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so everything's everywhere. But it's out there. We can, we can it's see. out there. Yes. <laughs> um, I think we'll probably wrap it up here. But before we do, can I? just give you this moment to sort of promote any organizations because i know you're you're both involved with a lot and uh you've both got 
social media pages. <laughs> you know. Yes. So t- tell us where we can find out more and more about your work. Well, Peter's um, and our colleague who we've been working on this together, our colleague Daniel has recently done a fantastic job of pulling everything together um, from the exhibition onto the Oxford Centre for Methodism and Church Histories um, website. There's a space specifically about the Smetham Bicentenary event and there are lots of links to things including a section in the Bloomberg Connect app um, about the exhibition, the online exhibitions that Peter mentioned earlier, um, digitalised parts of the Smetham collection from the Oxford um, Centre for Methodism and Church Histories collection um, and and a video that um, me and a colleague called Sarah did about Smetham's orrery of personal responsibility, which is available on YouTube as well. So that's probably the best place to start, would you say, Peter, if you kind of uh, want yeah. to find out more? There's quite a lot on Art UK. I mean, our whole... Yes, Art UK. And and others, uh, including... I mean, one thing we haven't... Met, I mean, there's a lot we haven't mentioned, but <laughs> um, one of them, a self-portrait James Smetham did when... Um, his his early life, where he was just falling apart, called "Thoughts Too Deep for Tears," and that's mm. a really haunting um, uh, self portrait. Um, and that's in the Ashmolean in Oxford. Yeah. So, well, yeah. It's, um, so there, there are a lot of online resources, um, right. and and hopefully other exhibitions will, will opportunities will come along. We've we've got some students, uh, some of our own art history students, history of art students, uh, who next week will be hanging. Uh, various of our works from our collections, uh, but there was one group which I was just going to, 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 to do a lot of smithing. Oh, fantastic. Uh, do keep us updated because yes. anything you have in, in future, we, we're more than happy to ha- have you back and to, to promote and, and to do as much as we can. Thank you. you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yes, it's been tremendous. And uh, yeah, thank you for your interest and and keep it going. Just thank you both for coming on. You're both enormous fountains of knowledge. I've learned so much from this (laughs) conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. So if you'd like to find out more about the Pre-Raphaelite Society or to consider subscribing to our journal. You can find us on www.preraphaelitesociety.org and we do now have a brand new shiny website. So go and have a look. There are even members forums. Uh, Thank you very much. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.